If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4 as we continue our, our way through the book of 1 Peter. We're in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If you need a Bible, uh, Richard is just got run over by my wife. He's okay, but um, he's got Bibles in his hand. He'll bring one right to your seat, and George is here. Just raise your hand. We'll get a Bible to you so you can follow along with us. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Peter writes, starting in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these... They think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The title of my message this morning is The Life of the Reborn. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend together in your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here and giving us not only understanding of your word, but application into our lives, Lord, so that as we're done this morning, we can walk out of this building changed, drawn closer into our relationship with you, more in love with you than when we first walked in the door this morning. We thank you for your greatness, God. You are a great God. We love you. We praise you. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they don't know you as their Lord and as their Savior, as their King. Lord, would you you especially speak to their heart this morning? Lord, thank you for our time together. We ask your blessing now upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over in John chapter 3, Verse 3, Jesus spoke to a religious ruler of that day, a man named Nicodemus, and he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I've never really watched any of those born movies. Maybe you've seen them on, on, in the movies, the action-adventure movies. They got the born identity and the born supremacy and the born ultimatum. I think there's like five total born movies. But the first three movies... I think make a great outline for us this morning with a little bit of a change. So if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. Number one, the reborn identity. Number two, the reborn supremacy. And number three, the reborn ultimatum. First, we have the reborn identity. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 and 18 in the New Living Translation. He says that anyone who belongs to Christ 
has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. So we've been given a new identity in Christ. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is telling us there is that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us upon the cross, we now have a union with him. We have totally a new relationship with him when it comes to sin. When I was about eight years old, Went fishing with my neighbor. His dad would take me and, and a friend, you know, to, to fish. And we would go to this place at the base of the San Bernardino Mountains in California. It's called Lotto Creek. And it was a pretty stream there. And they had campsites and they had fire pits and they had outhouses there. It's a nice place to go and fish for the day. And, and uh, But this particular day, we, we get there and, and let's just say the drive up and I drink in a lot of water and, and soda. I, I had to, to use the outhouse very badly. And so... I rush into this place, I shut the door behind me, and you know, you're standing there, and, and, and you know what happens after that, and, I, and I'm looking down into the toilet, and I see two beady eyes of a rattlesnake coiled up, rattling, just, you know, the noise they make. Haven't got a clue how it got in there, but I tell you that you've never seen an eight-year-old run out of an outhouse faster than I ran out that morning. I have this little you know, fear of outhouses nowadays. But, but anyway, listen, that is the way those of us who are born again should react to sin. To think of sin as that serpent coiled up and ready to strike. We should hate it. We should dread it. We should run from it. Fear the places where it thrives, that we would no longer mess around with sin anymore, any more than me wanting to go back into that outhouse. And that's what Peter is telling us here in chapter 4. Look at verse 1. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Because we've been given this reborn identity in Christ, since Christ suffered and died for us upon the cross, he took the penalty of sin upon himself. Jesus did all of that for us. We need then to arm ourselves when it comes to dealing with sin in our life. The phrase arm yourselves is a military term. It speaks of, of a weaponry. In our case, it's a weapon is our mind. We're to have the same mind, or better put, the same attitude about sin that Jesus had when he walked this earth. Jesus suffered for us in the flesh. It means that Jesus came to this earth to deal with sin and to conquer it forever. He dealt with the ignorance of sin by teaching the truth and by living it before men's eyes. He dealt with the consequences of sin by healing and forgiving. Uh, and on the cross, he dealt the final blow to sin itself. He was armed, as it were, with a militant attitude towards sin, even though he had great compassion for lost sinners. So then our goal, as a result of that, is to cease from sin. Peter says here, uh, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The words cease from sin doesn't mean that you can achieve some sort of sinless perfection in your life through suffering. No, rather it means you should choose to suffer than give in to the pressure to sin. Your new attitude is you are willing to suffer if necessary in order to keep on doing the will of God. 
having ceased from sin, literally means we have been released from the power of sin. We've been released from the bondage of sin. God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, broke the power of sin in my life when Jesus died for me. That's what happened. The moment uh, that we were saved, the moment we were born again, we were placed in Christ so that sin no longer has power over our lives. You know, many times you hear believers, you know, praying for victory. Oh, you know, I just trying to, to get over this in my life. I'm just praying for victory in this area. They're, they're missing an essential truth that could revolutionize their spiritual life. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. In other words, we don't fight the devil with our own strength. Rather, we stand in the Lord and in the power of his might and what he has done on our behalf already. We stand in the finished work of the cross. That sin no longer has control over our lives. And now, in verse 2, we should, because of our new identity in Christ, we should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Peter tells us the reason God broke the power of sin in our lives so that we would no longer live in our flesh, doing whatever our flesh dictates for us to do. Rather, we should be living in the will of God, obeying what God's word tells us to do and how to live. And then Peter says, listen, verse 3, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking, parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, I don't know about you, but in my pre-conversion days, I think every one of those gross sins I accomplished in my first year at high school, maybe my first two months in high school, Maybe you're not even are guilty of, of such sins in your pre-conversion days, but, but even still we're all sinners. And it was our sin that helped to crucify our Lord. So Peter's saying how foolish it is uh, to go back to that past life. The word for past there in the Greek means to pass by or to go past. The tense implies that the course is now closed and, and done. It's like this sign I saw posted at the golf course that reads, Course is closed. Like, is that sign really necessary? Who's going to golf in the snow? Uh, one shot and that's it. You know, you're done. Listen, when it comes to sin and the way we used to live, the course is closed. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature of wrath just as the others. Paul says, you once walked according to the course of this world, but because of your reborn identity, that course is closed, it's done, no longer are we to walk in those ways. No longer even put a thought in your mind to go down that path of sin. Course closed. That is the way uh, we as Christians should view our lives previous to salvation, namely as a closed matter. We have died with Christ, and just as Jesus has been raised from the dead, so too we walk in that newness of life. Those old practices, those old acquaintances, those old places of amusement, maybe uh, the old life which is not accordance with the Word of God should be, should be gone. And we walk in that new life in Christ. Now, that's not to say that we'll never struggle with sin and temptation to some degree throughout this Christian life. The Bible is clear in pointing out that in 1 John 1, 8, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Just because we're reborn, just because we have a new identity in Christ, 
doesn't mean that we will never sin. I wish it did. Now, certainly we, we should certainly sin less, but we're not going to become sinless. When the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound, he was not talking about an uh, uh, occasional believer falling into sin. That happens to all of us as believers. Rather, he's speaking of a person who continues to intentionally, willfully, habitually sin. It's an established pattern in their life. See, if there has been no change in a person's lifestyle after conversion, and if he or she continues in sin, the question is not so much whether that person can lose his or her salvation. Rather, the question is, was that person really saved to begin with? Were they really converted? Maybe they never really heard the true gospel uh, to begin with. Perhaps they had the gospel presented to them in a way that really wasn't the gospel at all. And I've heard preachers say, uh, hey, do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to go to heaven? Say this prayer and you can. Jesus, come into my heart. I want to go, ahead, go to heaven. In Jesus' name, I pray. Great. What do you think? Uh, uh, what do you think? I think I don't get it, you know. No, no, no. You just need to believe that you're saved. Here, sign this card. But that's not the gospel. You still have a sin problem. Because Jesus said in Luke 24, 47, there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 13, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Listen, if the gospel message doesn't call for the repentance from sin, then it's not the gospel message. And sadly, I, I believe there are thousands upon thousands of people who claim to be Christians, but they're not. They may have had their eyes open, but they've never really turned from the darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Commentator Donald Gray Barnhouse put it this way, Holiness starts where justification finishes, but if holiness doesn't start, we have the right to suspect that justification never started either. So to the Christian to the person who is truly converted, who is truly saved, Peter says, listen, don't go back to that old life. Paul says in Romans 6, how can you who are dead to sin live any longer in sin? Now here's the point. Because we've been given a new identity in Christ, and because Jesus Christ was crucified, died for sin, rose again from the dead, so too positionally we have done the same in Christ. When Jesus died, we died with him to sin. We are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Sin no longer has power over the life of the believer. This now brings us to our second point. Point number one, we have a reborn identity. Point number two, we have a reborn supremacy. Now, the reborn supremacy means we must let certain things reign supreme in our hearts. Now, this includes, first and foremost, the Word of God. The Word of God. It's got to be a priority in your life. Our stance upon the Word of God. But this also includes our testimony, our priorities, our, our endurance, and our love must reign supreme in our hearts for one another. Not that we have any supremacy over anybody else. Not that we're better than anybody else. But because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, our lives are better off. In fact, 2 Corinthians 3, 5 tells us that not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Now, we live at a higher standard or at least we should, that of wanting to do all to please the one who has done so much for us. You've been saved. And that's why your desires have changed. It's a result of Christ working in your life. The power of sin's been broken. You're no longer living after the flesh. But isn't it interesting, after coming to Christ, you see your old life through a different lens. 
what you used to think was, was so cool and, and so fun, now you see it as, as lacking purpose. You're embarrassed by it. I hear people talk all the time, oh, I wish I would have come to Christ sooner. The years I wasted just in partying and living for the flesh. Because you're no longer living like others do. Always lusting after things. Drunk, trying to find where the next party is. Uh, things that no longer satisfy. That, that emptiness is still there. That was a closed course. That was a waste of time. But now, <laughs> your old party buddies, Peter says in verse 4, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. That phrase, flood of dissipation, speaks of, of, of a word, the word flood speaks of excess, and the word dissipation speaks of wastefulness. He's saying you used to run in the same excessive wastefulness. I don't know what they call it now, but when I was in the world, when you were high on drugs or alcohol, you were wasted. You know, if your buddies wanted to go party, you'd say, hey, man, let's go get wasted, man. You want to get wasted? I mean, think about what kind of, kind of question that is. Do I want to put my body through excessive waste? I remember after coming to the Lord and telling my buddies, this is many years ago, but hey, you know what? I, I, I can't go out with you now. You know what? I just, I gave my life to Christ and I don't think I should, I should be a part of that what's going on. And their response, oh, Tom's got religion. You know, the unsaved, they don't understand the radical change that takes place in your life. You know, they don't understand when you let them know that Christ reigns supreme in your heart and life, that, that pleasing Jesus is the most important thing to you in your life. You know, in the world, they don't think it's strange when people wreck their bodies. They don't think it's strange when they destroy their homes. They don't think it's strange when they, they ruin their lives from running from one thing to another. But let that alcoholic become sober. Let that immoral person become pure. And suddenly they think, oh, you've lost your mind. And what do they do? They'll slander you. They'll mock you. Of course, in Peter's time, they were facing a far worse persecution than any type of verbal abuse that you or I have ever received. They were concerned for their very lives. But it all started with slander. That's what Peter's saying. Uh, listen to the way the New Living Translation puts verse 4. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, so they slander you. Now, in chapter 3, Peter pointed out how the unsaved might persecute you for doing what is right. Here, chapter 4, he mentions a different problem you will encounter. The unsaved will want you to participate with them, uh, uh, with them in their sinful activities. And when they, you refuse, then they, they don't understand and they react quite negatively. I mean, you, you, we can attest to that. I think we've all had it happen to us if you've been a Christian for any length of time. Your friends shun you, or the, the conversation stops when you walk into the room. You hear whispers behind uh, their back. Oh, no, so-and-so's here. We better not tell that joke. And, and, and you have those that may say to you, oh, come on, why, why do you go to church all the time? Man, how come we don't hang out anymore, you know? We used to go golfing on Sunday mornings all the time. Now we haven't golfed on Sunday. What's wrong? How come we got to be at Wednesday night's Bible study all the time? See, it's not really so much the old party life that people will try to bring you back into. Rather, they just want you to compromise. Don't be so committed. Do you have to do this stuff all the time? Listen, the world does not understand why we love to go to church for Bible study. The world does not understand why we love to listen to Christian music or, or Christian podcast Bible studies. They don't understand why we want, want to watch only movies that are clean and wholesome. They think it's strange, and that's okay. 
But the problem that we face today is there are those who claim to be born again, yet there's been no lifestyle change. And sadly, they're the ones giving you the hard time and wanting you to compromise. Oh, I'm a Christian too, but not like Tom. He takes the Bible so literally. He just goes way too far. You know, I, I, I was saved back in the 70s, and, and back in the 70s, we were called Jesus freaks back then because, you know, people saw that, they, well, we, you go overboard in, in loving Jesus and serving him and knowing him. Today, you know, they're called fundamental Christians, or you fundamental Christians, or we're called fanatics. You're Jesus fanatics. It's okay to be a football fanatic, a baseball fanatic, but being a Jesus fanatic, then you're slander. What does Peter say? Look at verse 5. To those that slander, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, Peter's heart there, this is not being vindictive. He's not saying, don't worry about them. God's going to nail them. He's going to get them. That's, he's not saying that. Clearly, Peter had a heart of compassion for the lost, for the gospel to be preached to them, and they get saved. Because we see that in the next verse. Look at verse 6. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now, Peter's not teaching some strange gospel here that, that, hey, once a person died, you can preach them the gospel once they're dead. No, that's not what he's saying. There's no second chances. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die after that, the judgment. What Peter is saying is this. This is past tense here. The gospel was preached also to those who are dead. Not is being preached, was preached to those who are dead. Peter's talking about those that have been martyred for their faith. That the gospel was preached to them, they repented, they committed their life to the Lord, and they ceased to live to please uh, their flesh. God was first and foremost in their lives. He reigned supreme in their lives to the point where they even lost their lives here on this earth. They were judged by men, and they were martyred. And there have been many people who would not compromise one bit from their commitment to the Lord as supreme in their lives, and they lost their, lost their lives. Think about this. On April 20th, this coming April, it'll be the 23rd anniversary of the Columbine shooting. It's been 23 years since that took place. One of the victims was a young Christian girl by the name of Cassie Bernal. Cassie was a 17-year-old junior. She'd be 30 years old now with long blonde hair, hair that she wanted to cut off and make into wigs for cancer patients who had lost theirs through chemotherapy. She was active in her youth group on Wednesday nights uh, through, through uh, you know, at West, West Pools Community Church. She was known for carrying her Bible to school. Cassie was in the school library that day reading her Bible when these two young killers burst in. According to witnesses, one of the killers pointed his gun at Cassie and asked, Do you believe in God? And Cassie paused for a moment and then answered, Yes, I believe in God. The gunman then asked why, but Cassie didn't have a chance to respond. The gunman had already shot her dead. Cassie's martyrdom was even more remarkable when you consider that she at one time had dabbled in the, in the occult, including witchcraft. She had embraced the same darkness and emptiness that drove her killers to do what they did. But then two years prior to her death, Cassie dedicated her life to Christ and her life turned around. She was a light for Christ and Christ reigned supreme in her life. And now she's living with God in heaven. That's what Peter is saying here. At one time in their life, the gospel was preached to them. They repented, they received the Lord, and they ceased to live to please their flesh. God was first and foremost in their lives. He reigned supreme in their lives. And because of that, they lost their lives here on this earth. 
And now they're living uh, to God in the Spirit. Peter's making a contrast here. You can either live for your flesh and the pleasures of this life and be, be judged later by God, or you can live in the will of God, which might mean you're, you're persecuted by men. Your life may be difficult here. You may even lose your life here on this earth, but you will live with God for all eternity. Now this leads to our last point, point number three, a reborn ultimatum. Look at verses 7 through 9. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Listen, you're either born again or you're not. That's the ultimate ultimatum. And those that are sold out for the Lord, the choices we make in this life since we've been reborn are different. The, the choice has been made. We've chosen to die to sin and live for Christ. You're completely sold out for the Lord. Now, what does that mean for us as believers? Three things, Peter says here. First and foremost, we will be watchful in prayer. Secondly, we will have love for one another. And thirdly, we will live our lives serving one another. If we're going to be serious about our walks with the Lord, it begins with being watchful in prayer. Look at verse 7 again. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, what is Peter talking about when he says the end of all things is at hand? Is he talking about the end of their persecution? Well, we know that wasn't true. Is he talking about the end of their lives physically? Well, many of them were, were uh, many more Christians were killed after them. Is he talking about the coming of Christ? Well, I think in the immediate context, it's clear that Peter has been talking about the coming judgment and the judge who's ready to judge the living and the dead, which we know will take place at Jesus' second coming. Most New Testament references that speak of the end are a reference to the second coming of Jesus when he will put his feet down upon Mount Zion. The mountain will split in two. But since the rapture of the church takes place prior to that happening, when Jesus returns in the clouds for his church, then truly now more than ever, Peter's words are true. The end of all things is at hand. Listen, the early church believed that Jesus could come back at any moment. They lived in great anticipation that every day could be the day that Jesus came for his church. That is what I believe made them such a powerful church. They were living for heaven. They believed Christ would come back for them at any moment. But he didn't come back in their lifetime. In fact, it's been almost 2,000 years now. But I can assure you, if you were able to interview anyone from that time, they would tell you that they don't regret for a second the sacrifices that they made or the effort to reach the people for the kingdom of God. Now, one of them would say, well, you know, I, I wish I would have gone on more vacations when I was down there on the earth. Oh, what a bummer in my life was. I wish I had more money. I wish I had made more money. No, they wouldn't say that. Why? Because in all that they did, they were storing up treasures in heaven. Now they're enjoying it. They're, they're with Jesus. They've enjoyed the words to Jesus said to them, well done, the good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Listen, folks, that's the same way the Lord wants us to live our lives. And because we know truly that the end of all things is at hand, Jesus needs to be first and foremost in every aspect of our lives. We need to see the urgency to get the true gospel message out. The repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. And for us to live with that expectancy, expectancy that the Lord could return at any moment. So when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he's reminding us that history is moving towards a definite goal, a definite purpose. 
Since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God has been working in and through human history to save lost men and women. And I would say this, that at this point in history, all of the major events uh, leading up to Jesus coming back for his church have been fulfilled. At this point in Bible prophecy, the only thing left to happen before Jesus judges the earth is the rapture of the church. Jesus coming back in the clouds and and taking his bride off the earth uh, to be home in heaven with him. Let me tell you, folks, after attending a a pastor's prophecy conference in Arizona, uh, I mean, we see uh, more clearly what's going on right now. There's a convergence taking place right now. Things are so lined up for the Lord to return for His church and the seven-year tribulation to begin more than any other time in history. So much so that if the Lord chose to to wait a hundred years, He would have to line everything up again to the way they are right now. We know in 1948 that Israel became a nation once again fulfilling the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 and other places. Israel had to be back in their land for prophecy to continue. We know that Russia in the end times is a big time player according to Ezekiel 38 and 39 and they will put together this this united force of countries to come against Israel. Listen, they are certainly in that place to do that right now. Maybe you noticed this last week that Israeli Prime Minister uh, Naftali Bennett has been trying to be the go-between guy between President Zelensky from Ukraine and Russian President Putin, holding separate talks of peace between the two, trying to broker a peace treaty. That could go south really, really fast. Or I should say Russia could go south really, really fast, fulfilling Ezekiel 38 and 39. Another sign of the end is, is at hand is that we know the Bible teaches that in the last days there's going to be a one-world government, a global government. We are certainly in a place for that to happen right now. It's interesting to me, years ago, things that we thought were, were just conspiracies are now in the front line. Klaus Schwab, president of the World Economic Forum, has called for a great reset, a new world order, a new global government. We know what ha- has to happen for a, a great reset. There has to be a great setup. If you're going to reset something, namely Western civilization, you need to break it first. COVID accomplished that. It was a global problem. What's caused a a record speed, a weakening of our economy like never before. A weakening of our military, those who've been kicked out of the military because they refused a a vaccine. A weakening of our nation as a world power. A weakening of our dollar as foreign countries no longer want to use the American dollar for trade and commerce. What a more perfect time for a great reset to happen. All right, no more debt, no more currency that we have the way now. We're going to reset everything this way. Many of you know that according to the World Economic Forum, their slogan is, own nothing and be happy. And they hope to accomplish that by 2030. It's on their website. This isn't conspiracy. This is right here. Everything is set up economically for a one world government. Speaking of the Antichrist, Revelation 13, 16, and 17, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Everything is set up technologically for the last days. We have the technology to not allow anyone to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. And as they swear their allegiance to the Antichrist, now they can shop and buy food and go to restaurants and amusement parks. We see how easily that can be accomplished today as evidenced by how easy it was to forbid anyone from going into restaurants without proof of the COVID vaccine. Everything is set up environmentally for the last days. We have a social environment for the last days. We live in an entertainment, distracting, uh, driven world. 
as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. A spiritual environment, men taking pleasure in unrighteousness. Listen, if Peter said the end is at hand some 2,000 years ago, we've moved closer than we've ever been. As I said, if the Lord chooses to wait 100 years, he'll have to set all these things up again. So knowing that the Lord could return at any moment, knowing that we have just a short time on this earth, that the time is at hand, knowing all the ends of these things are at hand, you and I, first and foremost, we need, as Peter says in verse 7, to be serious and watchful in your prayers. In other words, take your prayer life seriously. You know, prayer does a number of things for us as believers. Prayer aligns our hearts with the Lord's. 1 John 5.14 Now this is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Prayer expresses our dependency upon the Lord. I will lift my eyes to the the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121, 1 and 2. Prayer puts us in the place of receiving God's power. Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Prayer helps us to resist temptation. Mark fourteen thirty eight. Jesus said, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayer helps us fight against the enemy. There in Ephesians chapter 6, that last piece of armor that Paul mentions is that of prayer and standing against the enemy through prayer. Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Jesus said this in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, 33-37, Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I still say to all, watch. Watch. Peter lays out for us what we need to be doing and wait in anticipation for the Lord's return, knowing it's short. You know, when you talk to people about life, people have all sorts of uh, of ideas about life. You know, life is a journey. Life is a, a walk in the park. Life is a race, a rat race. You know, life is a, a war. Life is a party. Rascal Flatt saying, life is a highway. <laughs> Jesus said, your concept of life should be, life is like a servant waiting for his Lord to return, watching and praying, trusting the Lord for everything. Secondly, if we're going to be serious with our walks with Christ, if we know that the end times are at hand, we're going to be watching and praying, Then Peter says we're also going to have love for one another. Look at verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now notice it doesn't say put up with each other. It doesn't say just be civil with one another. It doesn't say avoid one another. No, we are genuinely, truly, honestly, and completely are to have love one for another. Even more so, that we know that the Lord could return at any moment. This Greek word here translated fervent means literally stretched out. It it has the idea that love is extended to reach the one loved. It's it's, it's the act of one who instead of living a self-centered life is giving of himself to others. That is that love comes first and foremost in, in everything we do as believers. And the reason that Peter exhorts us in this way, as Peter says, is because love will cover a multitude of sins. 
That is, when, when a Christian truly loves his fellow Christian, he or she is not going to broadcast, you know, his brother or sister's sins, but will seek to cover them up in the sight of others. Yes, we need to deal with them. We need accountability. But as we deal with the issue of sin, we don't want to destroy that brother or that sister because of that sin in the process. I mean, think about this. Aren't you glad that every time you blow it in sin, God doesn't broadcast it to the world what you just did? World, listen up. Pastor Tom got angry at that driver in front of him and laid on his horn for two minutes straight. Look how he sinned, and he calls himself a pastor. I'm so glad God doesn't do that. He'd have to be doing it all the time. <laughs> okay, Tom did it again. No, he didn't do that. But he would be, you know. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he loves me. He loves you. And in the same way, we need to have that same love for one another. If someone sins against you, don't go broadcasting it to everyone you come in contact with. That's not love. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Jesus said, this is how uh, men will know that you belong to me. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, Peter goes on saying we're to be serious and watchful in the way that we treat each other. In verse 9, he says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Grumbling here is not what your stomachs are doing right now because we're hungry. No, rather, Peter is speaking a sort of an unjust criticism, kind of a, a, a nitpicking, you know. Don't, don't nitpick at each other. Don't, don't grumble and complain. Time is short. And yet, look how much we squander our time when we grumble and complain about each other, when we should be you know, closing ranks and marching forward. Don't, don't, be, don't do that, Peter says. Rather be hospitable without grumbling. Then thirdly, if we're going to be serious with our walks in Christ, we will live our life serving one another. Look at verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Listen, every born-again believer has been given a gift from God. A gift means I didn't work for it, I, I, I didn't earn it, I certainly don't deserve it, but God in His love gave it to me. You have a gift, Peter says, so minister it. Use the gift. Everybody has gifts and talents given to them by the Lord. And whatever you do, we're to do it as for the glory of God. And whatever you do, you're to do it looking for opportunities to bring forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter here says that the gift that God has given you was designed to be used in serving one another. It's not for you just to put up on a frame or say, oh, this is, this is the gift I have and never use it. It's not to promote you. It's not to gratify you. God gives you a gift to share the gospel and to serve the body of Christ, to bless the body of Christ. Now, I do believe that some people can get confused between the gifts that God has given to them and where to use those gifts. Let me give you an example. Maybe you're gifted in singing or maybe playing an instrument and, and you think, well, I need to be a part of that worship team. I need to be on that stage and, and that's it. It would be cool to use my gift on this stage. But maybe, maybe the Lord wants you to use your gift downstairs with the kids and singing, you know, and, and leading the kids in praise song, you know, to the Lord. Maybe it's a, the third Sunday of the month and the Lord wants to use you to go to the convalescent hospital and sing to the, to the shut-ins that are there that can't get out, sing some, maybe some of the old hymns that they love. Maybe God wants you to go downtown and, and use your gift of singing. As we do, do the go team, you know, as we do some music and, and share. God wants you to use you that way. Maybe God wants to use you for a home study, leading worship at a home study. But you fight that, Lord, I, I need to be on the big stage. The problem is... Your focus is in the wrong place. 
You know, you focus what you perceive the use of your gift is instead of what God wants to use you for. Listen, someone may give you a new iron for a gift, but if you don't use it for its intended purpose, the results could be disastrous. Have you ever read the instructions on a new iron? It warns you not to iron coals while wearing them. <laughs> Duh. But the label is there for a reason. Someone, someplace said, I've got to get this corner here. And they iron their shirt while they're wearing, wearing it. They get burned. God has given you a gift, and he desires you to use that gift in a certain way that he directs, that he leads. Now, another person may have a gift of teaching. I need to use my gift. Great. There's a lot to need. K, K1, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth graders. Start it in the children's ministry. Maybe do a home Bible study. Yeah, but I kind of want your job, Tom. Uh, okay. Well, let me tell you. No, you don't. But <laughs> Listen, when our motivation is to love one another, when my focus is others-driven, then my heart is going to say, okay, Lord, where's the need? Where, where can I use my gifts? Lord, where can I help out? Because the gift is not for you. The gift has been given to you to bless the body of Christ with. So that when you use that gift that God has given to you, you are given the opportunity to be a living illustration of verse 10, a good steward of the manifold grace of God. To put it another way, it gives you the opportunity to illustrate the grace of God in its various forms. If someone offends you, let it go. If someone gets blessed, rejoice. If someone weeps, weeps with them. That's being a good steward of God's grace. Finally, we're told in verse 11 how to minister the gifts God has given to us. He says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. How are we to minister? With the ability and the strength in which God supplies. Who supplies it? God supplies it. Not us, not our flesh, but God through his Holy Spirit, as Zechariah 4, 6 tells us, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's the work of the Holy Spirit from the start to the finish. We've been given a reborn identity, a reborn supremacy, and a reborn ultimatum. That in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, who belongs to the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Oh, how in these last days we all need to be living for Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. As we close, folks, the end is at hand. How serious are we in our walks with Christ? How serious are we in our prayer life? Are we serious when it comes to having a fervent love one for another? Are we serious when we talk about coming alongside of each other and instead of grumbling and complaining, are we serving one another? Are we forgiving one another? If not, it's time. Time is short. We need to get going. Use those gifts that God has given you for His glory and for the benefit of His church. Finally, as we close, maybe there's some of you here this morning that have never given your life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You're not born again. You don't have a reborn identity, a reborn supremacy. Let me tell you, that leads you to a reborn ultimatum. And the ultimatum is this. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty three, whoever is not with me is against me. Either you're for Christ 
or you are against Christ. There's no middle ground. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, 32, 33. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's the ultimate ultimatum. The invitation is clear this morning. If you've never repented of your sin, never asked the Lord for, your, for forgiveness, if you've never put your faith and trust in him as he took the penalty for our sins upon that cross, Now is the time. Today is a day of salvation. Give your life to Christ today. If that's your desire, as soon as service is over, please come up and talk to me. Tell me, Pastor, I want to give my life to Christ. I'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible and let you know what it means to follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we spent in your word this morning. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for teaching us, for instructing us how we need to be living our lives, Lord, in these last days. Lord, help us to continue to turn from sin. Lord, to recognize that the course is closed, that we don't go down that path anymore, but to live for you each and every day. And Lord, when we blow it, that we will just confess our sins knowing you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, help us to live with you as supreme in our lives, putting you above everything else in our lives. You are first and foremost the most important thing in our lives, Lord. Help us to live that way. And Father, the ultimate ultimatum, Lord, that we would not go back, that we would live for you using the gifts that you've given us to bring you glory and honor and praise. Father, recognizing that time is short, Lord, help us to love one another, to cover a multitude of sins, Lord, by praying for one another, lifting one another up. Lord, uh, enhance our prayer life. Help us to see the need to spend time in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, to turn from their sin and be born again today, they would do so now, Lord. They would not wait another moment. They would give their life to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.